Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thank you for joining us for the special edition on COVID-19. Additionally, today's episode is part of the ASHP Advantage podcast series, Engaging the Experts, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen as we share the latest on COVID-19 with our resident experts. This episode is sponsored by Gilead. This podcast examines the clinical considerations with the use of pharmacologic treatments for COVID-19. This podcast is for informational purposes and not approved for continuing education credit. My name is Holly Burns, Director of Scientific Projects in the Office of Professional Development at ASHP, and I'll be your host for today's special edition podcast on COVID-19. Today, we'll be chatting with Dr. Paul Zamita and Dr. Jeffrey Pearson, both of Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, about updates on the use of antiviral therapies, anti-inflammatory management, as well as supportive care in patients with COVID-19. Thanks so much for joining us today, Paul and Jeff. Let's get started talking about today's topic. The literature is constantly evolving as we learn more on how to treat COVID-19. Focusing first on antiviral therapies, Jeff, why are guideline recommendations regarding the use of remdesivir and COVID-19 conflicting? First off, thank you, Holly, and the rest of the ASHP Advantage team for inviting Paul and I to discuss COVID-19 therapeutics with you today. But to jump right into your question, I should start by saying the main three guidelines that I think about for COVID-19 management are the NIH, IDSA, and WHO. Those three guidelines do agree on quite a few situations where remdesivir is not indicated. We don't have remdesivir indicated right now for outpatients and for those with critical illness. There is some iffy language, but they all agree that in mild to moderate COVID-19 disease, there's unclear benefit of remdesivir. Where the conflicting data comes in, though, is in severe disease, severe COVID-19, where patients have an oxygen requirement, where the NIH and IDSA recommend for remdesivir's use in those situations, while the WHO recommends against it. The reason, and the WHO recommendation is conditional waiting on further data from their solidarity trial. This is primarily based off of the NIH makes their recommendations primarily centered around the ACT-1 randomized control trial, which was funded by the NIH, where we did show an improved time to recovery with remdesivir and a trend towards lower mortality, but not statistically significant. But again, that study was not powered to show a mortality difference. Well, the WHO, who ran the solidarity trial, did not find a mortality difference with using remdesivir in that trial. In solidarity, they did do a meta-analysis of including ACT-1 and solidarity in it, and they did not see a mortality difference when combining all of the data, which is what led them to not recommend remdesivir for their patients. But there's a lot of nuance between those two trials and solidarity and ACT-1 where I I do believe that there probably is a benefit of remdesivir in shortening time to recovery, um, but the mortality benefit really hasn't been seen in any of the randomized control trials to date. So taking that into consideration, Jeff, where do you see remdesivir's place in therapy? That's a great question because I just kind of went in a roundabout way there. I personally, I agree with the NIH's current recommendations of utilizing remdesivir in hospitalized patients with an oxygen requirement, um, as well as I I lean on the side of certain hospitalized patients without an oxygen requirement if they have a high risk of disease progression. So specifically, the the group that comes to mind at our hospital is the immunocompromised population. Antivirals theoretically will work better the sooner on in the course 
that you give them. Um, and in immunocompromised patients that can have severe, progress to the severe disease pretty quickly, um, I, I still recommend remdesivir in those patients. I do not, however, recommend using remdesivir in patients already critically ill requiring mechanical ventilation. Okay, that helps. But what about remdesivir use in special populations? Jeff, can you talk more about clinical considerations regarding the use of remdesivir in patients with impaired renal function and or are obese patients? Yeah, definitely. Actually, most of the remdesivir questions I get these days center around these special populations. In terms of renal function, uh, if remdesivir is clinically indicated, my personal belief is that benefits generally outweigh the risks. The reason patients with impaired renal function were excluded from the remdesivir randomized control trials was due to the excipient sulfobutyl ether beta cyclodextrin, or short for cyclodextrin, or SBECD is what us pharmacists call it. This can accumulate in severe renal impairment and theoretically cause further nephrotoxicity. But we have lots of previous experience weighing the risks and benefits of this same excipient, SBECD, in IV voriconazole, which is often used for much longer duration than a short remdesivir course for COVID-19. So in general, even with the EHEFR creatinine clearance less than 30, if the benefits outweigh the risk, we do go ahead and give remdesivir in that population. We have uh, retrospectively published on, on that data. But as for your second special population for obesity, we don't have data on increasing remdesivir dosing above the standard 200 milligram loading dose followed by 100 milligrams daily. But it should give us all a little bit of comfort that in ACT-1, the main randomized control trial that showed an improved time to clinical improvement with remdesivir, 45.6% of patients in the remdesivir arm were considered obese, and they received standard dosing of the medication. Okay, great. Definitely, I think lots more to come for all of our different patient populations to see what remdesivir holds in the future. So let's switch gears a little bit. Paul, let's talk some more about inflammatory therapies and supportive care in our critically ill COVID-19 patients. What does the current literature indicate about corticosteroid dosing? Well, thank you, Holly. I appreciate that. Uh, it's, a, it's a great question. I think the 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 re reality is the, the, the literature currently, the randomized controlled data looks at about six milligrams of dexamethasone, either IV or PL for 10 days uh, for COVID-19. But to dig just a little deeper into it, we're really looking at kind of dosing of steroids in acute lung injury or ARDS type dosing. And so there's been a tremendous amount of history of corticosteroids in that indication. And in, to be honest with you, there's a lot of controversy uh, not only the dosing, but what patients should get it, and also why some patients benefit and some patients don't. And so, like, it seems like in the general population, in the studies for critically ill or even hospitalized patients with an oxygen requirement, that the steroids probably are helpful. And six milligrams uh, dexamethasone a day certainly seems like a, a helpful dose. I just think that that dose probably isn't the end all be all. And I think that if we were to Fast forward time with more research, I think we'll see that different dosing strategies may somewhat be helpful. We've seen this through some of the observational and even clinical control trials looking at different doses. Uh, again, in the non-COVID patient population, the most recent analysis in, in 2020 showed a 20 milligrams of dexamethasone for uh, five days with a taper. 20 milligrams was uh, effective in ARDS. And so some of the earlier analysis looked at higher doses but were stopped when the, the recovery was published and the six milligram dose prevailed. 
Uh, but there are still more studies coming out suggesting that different dosing strategies, even different glucocorticoids, such as methylprednisolone, for example, may be somewhat helpful. And some of these are at different doses. The reality, though, is that the guidelines and the biggest study to this point look at six milligrams of dexamethasone for 10 days. And I think that's probably the most relevant at this point. And I think our pharmacist listeners probably get some questions about other therapies as well. What about tocilizumab or any other immunomodulators? And so I think sometimes we forget that, you know, we're so early in this understanding of this disease state. And uh, a lot of the basic science has just started to now come out about the different markers that uh, inflammatory markers, which may be effective. And so we've known relatively early on, for example, that IL-6 is elevated in in COVID-19. And so therefore, it almost makes sense to at least research IL-6 inhibitors such as tocilizumab. And uh, it's shown in many different analysis now that um, there's been a tremendous amount of heterogeneity in the outcomes. In fact, some studies show that maybe even it could be slightly worse. A few different studies show that uh, it may have no difference, but the largest study to date suggests that there actually may be a slight mortality benefit. Now, it was specifically for patients who had a CRP of greater than 75, so patients who have elevated markers of inflammation. And so there's some suggestion uh, that uh, tocilizumab uh, may be very effective in the right patient population. It's just picking that right patient population. There's also a suggestion that what was happening earlier in the pandemic was we were kind of throwing these things on as patients were getting more and more ill. And so, you know, adding this therapy on kind of as a, a, a late add-on therapy was probably not a good idea. And that if we're going to use tocilizumab in the proper patient, we'd use it in addition to steroids and we would do it relatively early in the disease within 24 hours of mechanical ventilation, for example, was shown to have the the best results. And so in patients with markers of inflammation who are critically ill, particularly patients who are mechanically ventilated, if you can get it earlier, it seems like an IL-6 inhibitor such as tocilizumab may be effective. We do have to be careful, however, that, you know, these drugs are pretty potent immune suppressants. And so we're giving in combination with steroids. And, you know, we know that these opportunistic infections can happen, et cetera. But there seems to be, you know, some decent literature with tocilizumab. There are other inflammatory marker medications, kind of targeted immunotherapies that are being studied and being going to be published. But I still think that more basic research is needed to be done in combination with markers immune modulator drugs that target these markers and then study it in a prospective way. And lastly, let's talk about anticoagulation. Paul, what are your thoughts on the intermediate dose prophylactic anticoagulation in patients with severe COVID-19? I think it's important, and particularly as we um, talk about severe COVID-19, we're really talking about the hospitalized patients, most likely with some sort of oxygen um, demand, but not necessarily in the ICU, uh, whereas that would be more critical. And so I think that the reality is that um, we, we really have to start thinking about these patients slightly different. Now, I will say the intermediate dose is probably going to uh, fade away into the history of COVID uh, as one of those things that we did early on, knowing that these patients had a high risk of VTE uh, and also atrial uh, throm- thrombosis as well. Um, and so we were doing things such as intermediate doses to try. Most of the studies, or maybe really all the studies looking at intermediate dose, suggest really no major difference in severe or critically ill patients, and maybe even a possibility of an increased risk of bleeding with these. So that therapy, intermediate dose specifically, likely will not continue, and the the guidelines are recommending against intermediate doses as, as it stands. 
What about full dose or treatment dose anticoagulation? So this is where the rubber meets the road and extremely timely here. It seems as if if a patient is critically ill in the ICU already, that therapeutic anticoagulation in a patient without other compelling indication, but just with critically ill COVID, it's probably not going to be helpful in patients who are critically ill in the ICU and probably have an increased risk of bleed. Now, of course, if the patient has an indication for an anticoagulant, such as a VTE, those types of things, of course, you'd give therapeutic anticoagulation. But with a very interesting, compelling preprint data just gets, is got released in June of 2021, so this month, is that there's some pretty compelling data from three randomized controlled trials that were kind of lumped together that looks like therapeutic anticoagulation in the intermediate floors. So again, not the ICU, more of patients who have severe COVID with an oxygen requirement on the floor, for example, that those patients actually may benefit from therapeutic anticoagulation, even without another compelling indication. So it's very, very interesting to see. And you say, why? Well, number one, we know that patients in the ICU are going to have a high risk of thrombosis secondary to COVID and this disease, and perhaps getting ahead of it when the patients before they get critically ill could prevent some of the microthrombi. We don't exactly know. There's also some potential suggestion that there's some anti-inflammatory effects, and we've known this for many years, of heparin and low mercury heparins, such as the influence on IL-6 and other uh, inflammatory markers. So it's looking like therapeutic anticoagulation may actually be something that is helpful. And I would look for the next guideline to maybe incorporate therapeutic anticoagulation as a standard in patients in the, uh, on the uh, severe COVID on the floor before the ICU. So that kind of leaves those patients on the floor with severe COVID with therapeutic anticoagulation, remdesivir, and dexamethasone almost as a standard for those patients. Now, of course, we have to weigh the risks and the benefits of anticoagulation. So you you obviously might make sure we're looking at the patient's platelets and other signs of uh, bleeding, et cetera, and probably wouldn't just universally do it to all patients. But it's looking pretty compelling that therapeutic anticoagulation before the patient hits the ICU actually may have a therapeutic endpoint. And interestingly enough, the endpoint in those studies aren't actually looking specifically at VTE, they're looking at reliance on mechanical support, such as mechanical ventilation, et cetera. So preventing these microthrombi or inflammation prior to the going to the ICU is something that is, uh, is becoming very timely and compelling at this point. That makes sense. Anything we can do to help our patients, keep them out of the ICU, keep them from having to receive that mechanical support, it's definitely going to be beneficial. And I think it's great because last year at this time, we did not know much and now we know more, but I think there's still a lot of um, questions to be answered and more evidence to be discovered. So let's wrap up with some key takeaways from today's discussion. Jeff, let's start with you. Do you have any other clinical pearls for listeners on the use of remdesivir and COVID-19? Sure. Thanks, Holly. While they're completely different antivirals, I tend to compare remdesivir's impact on COVID-19 similar to oseltamivir's impact on influenza. Because if remdesivir is to have any impact on symptom duration or potentially mortality, it must be used early on after symptom onset. So the quicker we initiate it when a patient comes into the hospital with an oxygen requirement, the better. Um, One clinical pearl that I think most people have gotten on board with at this point after the simple trial releases is you should be limiting remdesivir durations for the majority of patients to just five days. There's really been shown no benefit to extending past that course 
in patients with mild, mild, moderate, or severe disease. One thing that has been noted and most are aware if they went through the EUA processes monitoring with remdesivir. Before you start remdesivir, you should determine LFTs, AFT, ALT, serum creatinine to calculate an EGFR, as well as the hidden one that came out when it was FDA approved uh, is prothrombin time or PT. That should be obtained on remdesivir initiation. And speaking of the package insert, though, while the package insert recommends an infusion time of 30 to 120 minutes, I'd highly recommend if a patient tolerates it to do that infusion over 30 to 60 minutes because this results in higher intracellular concentrations of remdesivir's active metabolite and theoretically could have better benefit against the virus. That last point, though, brings me to the, the last, not quite pearl, but the last thing I want to mention on this podcast is I'd like to recognize the late, great Francisco Marty for his tireless work during the COVID-19 surge at our hospital and rem- running the remdesivir trials basically to the ground. He was an amazing resource for all things remdesivir. We had hundreds of conversations back and forth on the medication, and he'll be dearly missed. Thank you for that, Jeff. I think there's a lot of unsung heroes within pharmacy and all healthcare professions throughout this pandemic. So thank you for that. And Paul, what keeps you up at night when thinking about the management of critically ill patients with COVID-19? Thanks, Holly. I think there there are two things that kind of keep me up at night. One is especially early on in in this pandemic was we had these critically ill patients in front of us and we just didn't really know exactly what was going to be helpful or not. For example, you know, we know that the patients had inflammation, but we didn't know if steroids were going to be helpful. You know, so we were kind of not withholding things like steroids in a lot of patients because we weren't sure. In fact, there's reasons to have done that. For example, influenza, early steroids in influenza in critically ill patients have suggested there's actually worse outcomes. And so as the studies came out, we see that maybe things like steroids are, are actually helpful. So what keeps me up at night is that what are is unknown now that we can do to help our patients that is still yet to be researched. And I think that that's kind of one of those things. What can we do better? And obviously, we can just follow what the current research tells us and guidelines. But I just wonder if there's more out there. There likely is. The other thing that keeps me up at night is, you know, when we think about these things, and I think about basic science, I think that oftentimes we as clinical pharmacists and clinicians in general, we try to connect basic science with common sense to make an outcome for a patient. I think that can be somewhat dangerous. So the basic science, for example, says that this marker of inflammation is high. Therefore, so if we block that marker in this individual patient, then we would be better off. And we just don't exactly know that. And so I think that as much as research has come out on COVID-19 and its management, I think the reality is that in five or six years, we'll have way more information. And so what, what do we do for the individual patient today? Is six milligrams of dexamethasone the right dose for the right patient? Are there other inflammatory markers that are relevant and that other blockers could help? But we just don't know at this point. So it's hard. It's hard because you don't want to practice outside of evidence-based medicine and make things potentially worse for patients when you have these critically ill patients in front of you, if that makes sense. Agree. Well, I thank you both for sharing your insights. I think there's a lot of pharmacists across the country and world who are are struggling with these same, same questions as well. So finally, I wanted to share some of the resources ASHP has developed and ways that ASHP is working to help their members manage the pandemic. Be sure to check out our ASHP COVID-19 Resource Center found at ashp.org, which serves as a clearinghouse for more information on COVID-19 for pharmacy leaders, clinicians, as well as resources for patients. 
That's all the time we have for today. I want to sincerely thank both Paul and Jeff for joining us today to discuss COVID-19 and ASHP's efforts to provide pharmacists with the most up-to-date lessons learned and resources. As a reminder, this podcast is also part of the ASHP Advantage podcast series, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to subscribe to ASHP's podcast channel as we will be posting more on lessons learned, practice, and therapeutic management of COVID-19. I'm Holly Burns, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.